So, uh, welcome. Um, if uh, you haven't been here for the last few weeks, uh, you won't know that we've been doing a series in Luke chapter 1, but that is what we've been doing. Uh, and so we've reached the end of Luke chapter 1 today. So Luke 1 has been an excellent run-up to Christmas, and uh, this morning um, it's still, as far as we're concerned, Christmas, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, this last section of the chapter, focuses once again on the characters of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, we saw them earlier on. For those of you uh, who weren't here for that, here's what's happened to them so far. They are an elderly couple, uh, and they don't have any children, which is a great sadness to them. And also, at that time, something of a social problem as well. It was a shame to them that they had no children. Now, Zechariah is a priest, and one day he is in the temple doing his priestly thing, and uh, an angel appears to him and informs him he is going to have a son. Um, Zechariah reacts with disbelief, which, um, to be honest, seems entirely reasonable. And uh, uh, partly as a punishment for that unbelief and partly as a sign that this is really going to happen, he loses the ability to speak. Uh, so Zechariah comes out of the temple. He can't say anything. The people around him deduce that he has had a vision from God. And in fact, it is the case that Elizabeth, in her old age, becomes pregnant. And that's where we left them. There's been a brief visit from Mary to Elizabeth. But now the time has come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she does. And they have a son. Now there's a a slight problem in these verses, which is that um, Elizabeth insists that the child be called John. Um, And nobody else is very happy with that uh, suggestion. Not because they have any inherent objection to the name John, it's a very fine name, but because it would be conventional that the child would be named after a father or a relative. They don't have anybody in their family called John. Why should we call him John? Elizabeth insists on it, and she insists on it because that is what the angel said they must call him. The appeal is made to Zechariah through sign language. We don't know whether Zechariah perhaps had lost the ability to hear as well as to speak, or whether they just weren't sure whether he could hear. But they they, they give him some signs. He grabs a writing tablet His name will be called John. And in that act of faith, that act of acknowledging that what the angel promised has come true, Zechariah receives his speech back. And everyone is amazed. And Zechariah uses his newly restored faculty of speech to praise God, filled with the Spirit and prophesying, the text tells us. And I want us to look this morning... Um, just at three things that Zechariah's song tells us about the God Zechariah was praising. Three things that we can learn about God from Zechariah's song. And we will actually come back and look a bit more at Zechariah at the end, because he's an astonishing character in his own right. But let's face it, in this passage, he plays very much second or possibly third fiddle to God himself. And so we're going to look at the character of God in three different ways. And then we will um, come back to Zechariah in our conclusion. First thing that we learn about God from Zechariah's song, the God Zechariah praises is the God who finishes what he starts. Now, in many ways, the early chapters of Luke are still very much Old Testament territory. 
The text feels like an Old Testament text. The way these people, Mary and Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, act and break out into song, it's all very reminiscent of occurrences in the Old Testament. The temple worship is a central part of it. We are still very much within the story of Israel before that story of Israel gets caught up and broadened and widened into the story of God's rescue of the nations. Zechariah and Elizabeth are, if you like, the last characters of the Old Testament. And this song is hugely anchored in that Old Testament background. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Israel, both the people of Israel and, of course, the character Israel. Jacob, who was given the name Israel after he wrestled with God. And there are three main anchor points in the Old Testament here. There is David. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Horn of salvation, incidentally, sounds quite weird to us. Um, It is a, a common Old Testament image for strength and therefore for the king of Israel. And Zechariah says, God has raised up a saviour from the house of David. Now, David, for Zechariah and for, for any Jewish audience of the time, would be a massively resonant figure. So much attaches to David. He is the great king of God's people, the, one, the man after God's own heart, the one who ruled the united nation of Israel and brought glory, the one who captured Jerusalem and established the presence of God in that city. David is massive. And in 2 Samuel 7 you can read a promise to David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. And so immediately, Zechariah is saying, God is fulfilling his promise to David. Now bear in mind, that promise was made a very, very, very long time ago. Zechariah is saying, now, now that promise is being fulfilled. God is finishing what he started with David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago. So we're in the prophets and we're thinking of all of the stuff that the prophets of the Old Testament foretold. Restoration for Israel, salvation for the world. Now we need to get it into our heads. When Zechariah says the prophets of long ago, it really was long ago. There had been several centuries since there was a last prophet. God had been silent for a long time as far as the Jewish people were concerned. But now, Zechariah says, God is doing what the prophets always said he would do. And then we go right back to the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Right back to the foundation of the Jewish people. Right back then, when God promised to Abraham that through his seed the world would be blessed, millennia ago, now God is doing that, Zechariah says. It's been so long, so long since there was any unambiguous activity of God in the nation of Israel. There have been centuries since the close of the Old Testament. And in that time, 
The Jewish people have had wavering fortunes. Sometimes they've been free, sometimes they've been slaves. Sometimes they've ruled themselves. Oftentimes in ruling themselves, they've made a complete pig's ear of it. Sometimes they've been true to the worship of God. Often they have not. Up and down and up and down. And where has God been? If I arrange to meet somebody for coffee and they don't turn up after 10 minutes, to be honest, I would tend to give up on them. Uh, Time to go home. They're not coming. They've been waiting for God for centuries. And Zechariah says, this is the time. All of that Old Testament stuff, now it is being fulfilled. Now it is coming true. And it all rests on the fact that God made promises. God made a promise to David. God, through his holy prophets of long ago, promised to do certain things. God swore an oath to Abraham. He made a covenant, a binding agreement. God made promises and he is keeping them. Verse 72, God remembers his holy covenant. It's not like God had forgotten it. It's not like, you know, say I'm at the cafe waiting for my friend to turn up, and um, ten minutes after they were supposed to be there, when I'm already headed to the bus because I'm impatient, um, they phone me up and say, sorry, dude, totally forgot. I'll be there in five minutes. Now, depending on how charitable I'm feeling, I'll either go back to the cafe and wait for them and say, oh, that's no problem, or I'll say, "Ah, sorry, chap, you've missed your chance. I'm on the bus, I'm going home. But it is not like that. It's not as if God had forgotten his promises and then suddenly he looks at his watch and goes, whoa, I'm well overdue. I'd better crack on with that. But it is the case that God calls to mind his promise and resolves to keep it, resolves to put into effect everything that he had said he would put into effect. He's the God who finishes what he starts. I think there are a couple of applications to us from this. One big picture one, and one maybe more personal. In the big picture, doesn't it sometimes feel, from our perspective, as if God is absent? As if the kingdom of God is not advancing as we feel it ought to. As if the power that we expect to see from an almighty God is not being unleashed on the church or the world. Sometimes it feels like a day of small things. A day when the church is in retreat. A day when we struggle. A day when you'd be tempted to say, maybe God has forgotten He doesn't forget. His time frames are not our time frames. He doesn't move at the speed that we might like him to. But God remembers his covenant. God fulfills his promises. We can count on him. There are things that he has promised still to do. To win an inheritance for himself from every nation, tribe, language and people. He will do it. He has promised to build his kingdom 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will do it. He finishes what he starts. And then there's a kind of personal application. Life may be a bit of a struggle. Sometimes it feels like the threads of life have just all come a bit untangled. And you're not quite sure what God is doing with you right now. Life is just a disparate jumble of things that don't make any sense. Where's the end? Where is God? God finishes what he starts. He pulled together the threads of centuries of Israelite history and brought them to their fulfillment in Christ. He can pull together the threads of your life. He can make sense of what is going on. Think of the Apostle Paul in in Philippians chapter 1. He writes to the Philippians, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's a God who finishes what he starts. If he has begun to work in you, he will bring it to completion. He has begun to work in our world. He will bring it to completion. It's the God who finishes what he starts. Secondly, he's the God who frees those who are in slavery. Back to the beginning of the song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Redeemed them. That image has two sorts of backgrounds. There's a general background in the slave market. God has bought his people back, bought them out of slavery. But actually, there's an Old Testament background, which is perhaps closer to what is being talked about here. The specific background of the Exodus. God freeing his people. God redeemed his people out of Egypt, says the Old Testament. Now, that Israel was enslaved in the time of Zechariah could hardly be doubted. The country was occupied. Uh, There were Roman tax collectors everywhere, uh, bleeding the place dry. They really were. It was an extremely oppressive regime. Uh, There was a a collaborationist Jewish leadership in control of the temple um, who were pretty happy to go along with the Roman occupation so long as they stayed in power. It was not a good time to live in this part of the world. To be freed from all of that would be wonderful. To be freed from Roman oppression would be great. To be freed from having to pay taxes that you can't afford. I'm still quite keen on that, to be honest. (laughs) But the freedom Zechariah is talking about goes a lot deeper than that. Look at verses 74 and 75. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. To be rescued. But not just rescued for no purpose, but rescued so that they can serve God. Now, it is a paradox of the Bible, but a central paradox, 
that freedom is always about service. If you go right back into the Exodus story, God is very clear. He rescues his people from Egypt and from the harsh and unpleasant service of Pharaoh so that they can be free to serve him in his pleasant and delightful service. That is what freedom is for. Let my people go, says God through Moses, that they may serve me. Freedom is about serving God. Freedom from fear and freedom from those who hate us and freedom from our enemies is only good insofar as it brings us freedom to serve God. Our culture gets freedom very, very wrong. Freedom in our culture is always freedom from something. Freedom from authority. Freedom from parents. Freedom from traditional sexual mores. Um, My son is, is very keen on freedom at the moment, at two and a half going on 13. He is very keen to be liberated from the repressive regime of his parents, um, which repressive regime includes you know, such, such hideous and restrictive rules as you may not try to dive headfirst down the stairs and you may not repeatedly beat your sister to the head with a plastic hammer or any other hammer, to be honest, but the plastic one was the one that was to hand. His idea of freedom is just being able to do whatever he wants. Even if whatever he wants is damaging to him and other people, he just wants to be able to do whatever he wants. Can I suggest that that extraordinarily childish idea of freedom is basically the idea of freedom that there is in our culture? I must be free to be myself. I must be free to express my inmost self even if my inmost self is ridiculous and full of desires that will damage me and damage other people. Real freedom is not like that. Real freedom, according to the Bible and according to Zechariah's song, is freedom to serve God. Freedom to do what we were made for. Freedom to offer our lives in worship to God and therefore also as we find out from the rest of Scripture, to serve our neighbour. That is real freedom. The vision of freedom that is put about in our culture today is actually just a vision of a little person curving in on himself until only my interests count for anything. The vision of freedom that Zechariah has opens us up, opens us up, upwards to God to serve him and outwards to others to serve them. God's service is perfect freedom. I wonder if um, serving God seems like freedom to you. I wonder if serving God feels like liberation to you. If it doesn't, I wonder whether it's the God of Zechariah you're seeking to serve. 
I wonder whether it is the God of the Bible, because this is a God who frees people. Sometimes I think serving God feels toilsome and hard to us, feels like a real slavery and a drudgery, because we get God wrong. Either we are serving a false God, a God who cannot satisfy our needs and therefore demands from us more and more work and effort to try to generate some sort of meaning and satisfaction in our lives, or we're serving God without understanding that we do it from the foundation of his secure love and grace. We don't serve God in order to earn his favour. It's not the way it works in the song, is it? We are set free by God's favour, and therefore we are enabled to serve him. Serving God on the basis of a certain knowledge that God loves us and is gracious to us is very different. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Is that your experience? If not, are you taking on a yoke and a burden which is not his? A burden which you have made for yourself? Are you trying to earn the favour of a God who loves you enough to redeem you at the cost of his son already? Because if so, stop. That's daft. He's the God who finishes what he starts. He's the God who frees those who are in slavery. And he's the God who forgives his people's sin. We just read verse 74 and 75. Did you notice verse 75? Let me read the two verses together. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Holiness, that is, to be set apart completely and wholly for God, to have undivided devotion to him. Righteousness, that is, to perfectly measure up to God's divine standard of what is correct and right in human life. Do you feel uh, capable of that? Holiness and righteousness all the days of your life. Could Zechariah even offer that in his role as a priest of Israel? Holiness and righteousness all the days of his life. See, there is another deeper aspect to the freedom that God offers. In verse 77... John is being sent to give God's people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. At the bottom, at the foundation of the freedom that God uh, gives is the forgiveness of sin. Augustine um, prayed, O Lord, rescue me from that wicked man, myself. Because he knew where the deepest source of slavery in his life was. Not in any external force, but in his own sinfulness. 
in his own inability to live that life of perfect freedom, his own inability to devote his life to the worship of God and the service of others. And so he asked God for rescue from himself. And that is exactly the freedom that God offers. The forgiveness of sins. The putting away of all of the stuff that I've done wrong. All of the muck that clogs up my life. The removal of all of that. The last couple of verses are fantastic in their imagery. The rising sun of God's favour and forgiveness comes up like, like the first little bit of dawn and shines on those who have been utterly trapped in their own sinfulness, rebelling against God and unable to stop themselves rebelling. I'm reminded of um, my children again. Sorry, you know, stage of life where all the illustrations are liable to be based on my kids. And uh, I'll ask their forgiveness later when they understand. I guess all kids are like this. You can get to a point where you're so worked up about what you want and you're not allowed that you can't even really remember what it was you wanted anymore. You're just angry. I think that's how so many of us live. So trapped and messed up in our own sin, we're not even enjoying it anymore. We don't even know why we're doing it anymore. We're enslaved and in darkness. But God's favour and forgiveness shines on those who are trapped in the darkness of their own sin and shows them the right way to walk guides their feet into the path of peace. It's that way around. It is not blunder about in the dark until you find the path of peace and then maybe God's sun will rise on you. It is God's sun rises and as that light beams out, you are shown how to live. It is a fantastic, fantastic thing that Zechariah is celebrating in this song. The forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness brings freedom. It is actually only forgiveness that can, set, that can set us free from fear and enable us to worship God. The psalmist writes, If you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? But there is forgiveness with you, therefore you are feared. God can be truly worshipped only by those who know they are forgiven. Because otherwise... How would we dare to come before him? How would we dare to attempt to serve him if it weren't for the fact that he has taken away all of our sin? Because of his forgiveness, we can enjoy and delight in the freedom of a life of serving God and others. And that's Christmas. That's Christmas. God is finishing what he has started. God is setting people free. God is bringing forgiveness of sins to his people. All through the birth of Jesus. Through his life and death and resurrection. Which deals with our sin. Gives us a new status with him. 
allows us to delight in serving him all the days of our life in holiness and righteousness. This is the tender mercy of our God. What a fantastic combination of words. Tender mercy. Sometimes you have to exercise a a strong mercy, a harsh mercy. You know, when he's throwing himself down the stairs, you have to grab him and it might hurt. But there's a tender mercy in God that comes to us in our sinfulness and darkness and picks us up gently and says, no, this is the way, walk in it. That's why it's Christmas. What better example could there be of tender mercy than God himself becoming a little baby to live amongst us as one of us? Tender mercy. Christ enters the world as as the mighty horn in the house of David, the mighty saviour, but also the little baby, the helpless baby, as the fulfilment of the covenant with Abraham, as the redeemer, as the one who will set his people free because he is the one who will bring forgiveness of sins through his life and death and resurrection. Christmas is great, isn't it? Yeah, okay, not convinced. Here are some... There are some carols, some great carols that we just don't sing very much, probably because they sound very twee, but I'd love it if we could reinstate them. It's never going to happen, but never mind. God rest ye merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ, our Saviour, is born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power, though we had gone astray. Glad tidings of comfort and joy. On Christmas Day, all Christians sing to hear the news the angels bring. News of great joy, news of great mirth, tidings of a Saviour's birth. Merriness, joy, mirth, happiness. God's tender mercy has reached down into our darkness and the light has dawned and it shines on us on you and on me, as we see the face of the infant Christ. John the Baptist went ahead to give people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of all their sins. Do you have that knowledge of salvation? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? that everything you have done wrong is wiped out. Listen, if not, if not, here is Christmas, the dawning of light and the beginning of that knowledge of forgiveness of sins. It's not difficult to say to people, hey, embrace Christmas. Everybody embraces Christmas. Embrace Christmas. Receive the tender mercy of God in Christ. And hey, if you know that forgiveness of sins, 
the light has dawned in your heart. More rejoicing, please. More delight. More cheer. Let me just very briefly return to Zechariah. Look, Zechariah's son has just been born, and he's just regained the power to speak. I'm thinking that in that situation, I would be fairly chuffed. And it is possible that my first recorded words would be something like, hurrah, I can speak. Oh, what a boy. And oh, look what he's done. But (laughs) Zechariah barely mentions his son and certainly doesn't focus on himself. Even when John the Baptist does get mentioned, it is only as the forerunner to Jesus. Because Zechariah's vision is bigger than that. He is caught up in what God is doing in Israel through the birth of a saviour, Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we could be Zechariah's, those who are so caught up with what God is doing that we sing praise to him, delight in him, and commit ourselves to lifelong service, which is freedom, because we are serving the God of tender mercy.